This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Cardio Nerds Prevention Series. In this discussion, we will learn all about the family history for ASCVD, getting it, using it, and counseling about it. This is a particularly unique episode that was inspired by work from the Cardio Nerds Academy. As some of you may know, we founded the Cardiners Academy to develop the modern educator for the digital world with the mission to pair content creation with personal and professional development. Through the Academy, we get to work with some of the brightest and most innovative burgeoning educators out there. And today you get to hear from two of them, Dr. Ahmed Ghanim, Academy Chief, and Dr. Gurleen Kaur, Director for the Cardiners Internship. We are grateful to have Ahmed and Gurleen as part of the family and leaders within the academy, and also so very proud that this discussion was inspired by an incredible infographic created by Ahmed and reviewed by our content expert, Dr. Anne-Marie Navarre. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education, to continue creating free and unbiased quality content We are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. And the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by cardio nerds without external bias. And with that, it's time to get nerdy. Gurleen and Ahmed, welcome to the show. Please introduce yourselves to the audience. Thank you so much, Ahmed. My name is Gurleen Kaur, and I'm currently a first-year internal medicine resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. I grew up in New Jersey and went to medical school at Albany Medical College. It's just been such a great experience being an intern in the CardioNerds Academy during this past year, and I'm so excited for the upcoming academy year. I've been interested in many different aspects of cardiology, including prevention, so I'm very excited to learn from today's discussion. Hi, everyone. My name is Ahmed Gunim, and I'm a PGY2 resident at Lehi Hospital in Burlington, Massachusetts. I grew up in Egypt, where I also attended med school and finished a cardiology residency. I then spent a little under two years as a research fellow at the Massachusetts General Hospital before starting residency. I'm also a soon-to-graduate CardioNerds Academy fellow, and I have the honor of staying in the academy next year as a chief. So happy to learn more about cardiovascular prevention today. Well, Gurleen and Ahmed, this is so amazing to have you here today for this phenomenal discussion. And as Ahmed said earlier, this episode was really born out of the great work and creative brilliance that Ahmed put into constructing and developing this really informative infographic that summarizes so much of what we will be talking about today. And we always like to have faculty involved with the infographic creation as part of our extensive editorial process at Cardio Nerds Academy. And we could not have thought of anybody better to help us with this particular project than Dr. Anne-Marie Navarre. Ahmed, what drove you to tackle this particular project for this infographic? Uh, Yeah, Dan, I was actually inspired during one of our med students' case presentations. At the family history part of it, I realized that many of us had a difficult time not only taking a relevant history, but also knowing how to meaningfully use the information to help our patients. 
I learned a lot while reading about the topic, so I wanted to share what I learned in a way that I thought would be useful to trainees like myself. I'm very grateful for all the help I got from the Cardio Nerds editorial process while making this infographic, as well as from our expert content reviewer and guest today, whom I have the absolute pleasure of introducing, Dr. Anne-Marie Navarre. Dr. Navarre is an associate professor of cardiology at UT Southwestern. She earned her medical degree at Duke University and her PhD in global disease epidemiology and control at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Also at Duke, she completed a residency in internal medicine and pediatrics and cardiology fellowship, as well as a research fellowship at the Duke Clinical Research Institute. Dr. Navarre is a powerhouse of cardiovascular prevention. She has authored over 100 scholarly articles, and she's a board member of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. She is also a leader within her community, having developed Doctors with Heart, a platform which provides cardiology consultations via telemedicine with physicians at participating community clinics to promote access to cardiology care in under-resourced communities. These efforts were recently recognized by the American Heart Association as Dr. Navarre was awarded the AHA Award of Meritorious Achievement. Dr. Navarre, welcome to the Cardinals. Thank you, Ahmed and Gurleen. I'm just totally delighted to be here and be able to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is cardiovascular prevention. All right. Well, Dr. Navarre, Gurleen, Ahmed, again, pleasure to have you all here. Let's get started. We encounter these patients with family histories of cardiovascular disease regularly in our practice, and these patient-clinician conversations can sometimes be very challenging. Now, without further ado, let's talk about some serious cardiovascular disease prevention by going over a case. Sure, Dan. Mr. B is a 51-year-old gentleman who's referred to Cardinerd's Prevention Clinic by his PCP. He does not have a significant past medical history. He's a former smoker, but quit two years ago. His blood pressure in clinic today is 138 over 84 and not on any antihypertensives. His most recent lipid profile two weeks prior showed a total cholesterol level of 250, a triglyceride level of 230, an LDL cholesterol of 174, and an HDL cholesterol of 30. He tells us that his father had a heart attack at the age of 52, and he would like to further understand his own risk. We calculate his ASCVD risk score, and it's 9.8%. Dr. Navarre, can you walk us through what constitutes a positive family history of premature ASCVD, and can you walk through the art of soliciting the family history from our patients? Great question. The first part's easier to answer, which is a family history of premature ASCVD includes a female first-degree relative with atherosclerotic event like a myocardial infarction or a stroke, before the age of 65 or a male first-degree relative before the age of 55. So that means parents or siblings. It's also helpful to get information if you have it about more extended relatives like aunts and uncles and grandparents. Now, how to get the history can be a little bit complicated. Generally, people often know about sort of general speaking how long people have lived in their life, but they don't always know what their relatives had in terms of comorbidities or what they died from. So usually I start pretty broadly and ask generally, what do you know about any medical conditions that run in your family? Sometimes people will lead with that and give you a pretty strong family history. But then I go into pretty specific questions and say, is your mother still alive? How long did she live? Does she have any medical conditions? Does she ever had a heart attack or a stroke? And then if yes, I ask about how old were they? And really, we're just looking for a ballpark. So sometimes people will say, well, you know, my mom 
had heart disease and she had a bypass surgery, but I, I don't really know when. And I say, well, when, when you were a little kid, was she affected? Oh, yeah. I mean, she had problems ever since I can remember. It's probably on the younger side of things. So you can sort of ask for ballparks in decades. And you also want to ask about siblings and, and go through each one. Have they ever had a heart attack, a stroke, a bypass surgery? Did they need a stent in their heart artery? People don't always know their biological family history. And so oftentimes we don't have that information. The other piece that can be hard to elicit is the difference between atherosclerotic events and sudden cardiac death. And this is important because I've had patients referred to my clinic for preventive cardiology who don't have a family history of myocardial infarction. But when we actually get into it, they have a family history of sudden cardiac death. So they'll think that they have a family history of heart attack. But then when you start to ask them about it, they tell you, well, my dad was in his 40s. He was healthy. He had no medical conditions. And he was found dead in sleep one night. Or multiple family members dropped dead unexpectedly or were found drowned or sort of other kind of sudden death episodes that may be myocardial infarction, but are also possibly things like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or inherited arrhythmia syndromes. So remember that atherosclerotic disease is much more common in terms of a cause of sudden death that's unexplained from a cardiac standpoint, but it's really important that we don't miss the opportunity to identify inherited cardiomyopathies, channelopathies, or other rhythm disorders at that same time. Thank you for that, Dr. Navar. And, you know, during a busy clinic visit, it might be easy to brush over the family history, but clearly the time we invest in learning more about our patients' families is time invested in learning more about our patients. But what about the dose of family history? Logically, when it comes to blood pressure or LDL, the higher the values, the greater the risk. But is there a similar continuum of risk when it comes to family history, say, on the basis of the number of affected relatives, the closeness of those relationships, or their age of onset? There absolutely is. So it's a great question. Studies around this are kind of difficult and are limited by the fact that some people only have one sibling or no siblings, and there's challenges in recall and knowledge. That said, the few studies that have looked at the number of affected relatives have found a dose-response type uh, occurrence where increasing number of relatives affected increases your risk of heart disease. And while I was unable in studying for this podcast to figure out if there was a difference, if the dose response all came from one side of the family versus another, sort of clinically, I often have even more worry when there's a premature family history on both sides, the maternal and paternal side. Although that's more my clinical intuition, I don't have any data at my fingertips to support that. Thank you, Dr. Navar. Getting your insight on how to take a nuanced family history, as well as the differences in the dose of family history, is very helpful. While family history of premature atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is not included in the pooled cohort equations, the 2019 ACC AHA primary prevention guidelines included as a risk-enhancing factor. How does our patient's family history affect his cardiovascular risk? That's a great question. And I think it's important for us to first zoom out and remember how the pooled cohort equations are derived and how that derivation process impacts the variables that are included in them. So the pooled cohort equations include data from large, you know, several thousand person apiece cohort studies of people without heart disease that are followed longitudinally over time. So studies like ERIC, Framingham, Mesa, CHS, etc. Those studies did a great job at capturing all sorts of data about patients. 
And most of those studies or all of those studies included some form of an assessment of family history. But there's some variability in how family history was captured between those studies. And so there's a little bit of noise in the variable to begin with. The next thing that happened, though, when the pooled cohort equations are developed is they take all of those patients and then using all of the available clinical data, see which factors best predict 10-year risk of heart disease. Now, in order for a variable to make it into a prediction model, it has to do two things. First, it has to increase somebody's risk of heart disease beyond what other variables are already in there. So it has to add incremental information beyond the other variables, which in the pooled cohort equations are blood pressure, cholesterol, smoking status, age, sex, race, and diabetes. Now, We know from a number of studies that if you take people and adjust for all of those risk factors, those with a premature family history do have an increased risk of heart disease compared to those who don't. So why didn't it make it into the pooled cohort equations? The reason for that comes from the fact that there's a second thing that has to happen in order for a variable to be included in a risk model. And that is that at a population level, it needs to be common enough that it increases the discrimination ability of that equation at a population level as well. So if most of the risk of family history is either captured by these other variables, meaning people with a family history of heart disease may also be more likely to have diabetes, high cholesterol, et cetera, then you're gonna lose some of the predictive ability of that equation. The second is that if a variable is more rare, then it may not perform at a population level sufficient to be included into a risk equation. It doesn't mean that it's not important for an individual, but it means that for a population, we can do a pretty good enough job of estimating a population's risk of heart disease with those other variables, and we don't need family history. Now, the reason I went through all of that is because this is true not just for family history, but all of the other risk enhancers that are part of the 2018 ACC AJ cholesterol guidelines. A number of studies have shown that all of those risk enhancers Things like elevated C-reactive protein, lipoprotein A, ApoB, metabolic syndrome, chronic kidney disease, things that we've learned about in other cardio nerds podcasts, those all increase risk at an individual level, even though they didn't make it into the pooled cohort equations because at a population level, they didn't affect overall performance of the risk model. So the PCE we should think about as a starting point. Now, what's your risk? given all of these measured factors that we think about in the pooled cohort equations. But then we need to remember that we don't treat populations when we are doctors in clinic, we treat patients. So we need to look for these other risk enhancers, HIV, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, pregnancy-related risk factors, family history of heart disease, in order to refine that starting point of a risk assessment with the PCE to come up with a more tailored risk assessment for that individual patient. Thank you, Dr. Navarro. This is such an important point. Explaining to our patients that their family history enhances their risk, even though they may be in the borderline or intermediate risk category like our patient, is crucial to counseling them on the next steps, which is a segue to my next question. So after we explain to our patient the enhanced risk, he tells us that he feels like his fate is sealed and that nothing he can do would improve his outcomes because it's in his genes. We have data, though, that shows that healthy lifestyles reduce the risk of coronary artery disease in individuals at high genetic risk of CAD. 
Dr. Navar, how would you handle this challenging conversation and counsel, Mr. B? It's a great question, and I think it is an important reminder for us that we have to think about how these risk conversations are affecting our patients emotionally, and also really start with an understanding of how the patients feel to begin with. Oftentimes, we hear about people that just launch into a risk conversation and tell somebody, oh, you're at high risk and you have a family history and that puts you at even higher risk and you used to smoke, so you're at even higher risk. And there's almost a scared straight approach that really can be demotivating for some patients. It's also a waste of our time. This particular patient is already worried about their own risk of heart disease. They're not coming here for you to tell them that their family history increases their risk. They're coming here because they want to know what they can do about it. So the first part of a risk conversation for patients really needs to be asking them how high they think they are in terms of qualitatively. Do you think you're at risk for heart attack or stroke? Or how much are you worried about a heart attack or stroke in the future? And then you can use their actual risk assessment data to help refine that. If somebody says, oh, I don't think I'm going to have a heart attack, I'm much more worried about cancer then we can use our knowledge of their risk to maybe help refine that and and raise cardiovascular risk a little bit up on their radar. But on the flip side, we really need to find patients who are like our patient in this situation, who are so worried about heart disease that they are almost demotivated because they think that there's nothing that they can do. Their fate is sealed, as you said. So for this particular patient, I use sort of the same line for a lot of people. And I say, look, it's never too late to start cardiovascular prevention. And there are never patients that are too high risk that we can't do anything to lower your risk of heart disease. The good news for this patient is they've already quit smoking. So I would start by reinforcing the great work that this person's already done to lower their risk of heart disease. And I tell them that you've already dropped your risk of heart attack or stroke dramatically by quitting smoking. And every year you refrain from smoking, your risk continues to fall. So you've already made perhaps the most important step to help combat your family history by stopping smoking. The good news is that you're here in clinic with me now, and I have a lot of tools that I can use to help lower your risk of heart disease and prevent your genes from becoming your destiny. Your family history increases your risk. It's something that may be running in families. It may increase the likelihood of you developing cardiovascular disease. But all of the tools that I can use to lower your risk of heart disease, controlling your diabetes if you get it, lowering your cholesterol with statin medication, controlling your blood pressure, things that you can do, good diet, good exercise, those can all decrease your risk, even with a family history, because there's a lot that you can do to modify whether or not your arteries develop cholesterol plaques and strokes and heart attacks over the long run. So I like to be really positive and usually start by finding something that the patient has done to congratulate them, to show them that they're already making a difference. And for many, that might just be that they made an appointment with the preventive cardiology clinic. But find something that sort of reinforces what great work they're already doing and then go on to talk about what treatments or other things that they can do to lower their risk in the future. Thanks so much, Dr. Navar, for that. You know, starting every patient conversation by getting on the same page is an absolute must. And it's never too early or too late to start focusing on cardiovascular prevention is also something that really resonates with me. 
And finally, your approach to patient engagement just really seems so full of empowerment for the patient. And I think that that's going to be something so critical when it comes to walking the journey of cardiovascular prevention, where just so much motivation needs to be there from all sides. You know, we should be using every encounter with patients to highlight that smoking cessation, regular exercise, a healthy diet and weight management are critical and crucial for cardiovascular prevention. And in this case, with a positive family history, which is a surrogate for genetic predisposition, the higher the risk, the greater the benefit derived from lifestyle management. In addition to lifestyle management, would you recommend a statin for Mr. B, who has an intermediate ASCVD risk and a risk-enhancing factor such as positive family history for ASCVD? The short answer for this is very likely yes. This person is at intermediate risk, but when you take into account their family history, they're at even higher risk than that. Now, you didn't tell me what their lipid levels were or their blood pressure. So it's important that we look at all of their risk factors and think about, you know, where you're going to get the biggest bang for the buck. But it's likely, given their family history, that some of that could be cholesterol or more specifically, ApoB lipoprotein mediated. And so I, I would start this conversation thinking that, you know, a cornerstone or a foundation of long-term risk prevention for this patient is going to be a statin. And I actually present it to the patient almost in the same way uh, as a vitamin. I tell them, I'm not treating high cholesterol for you. What I'm doing is giving you a medication or a pill every day that's going to lower your risk of heart disease. So I say, imagine that you're shopping at Costco and there's a vitamin that will lower your risk of heart disease over your lifetime by 30 to 50%, depending on your cholesterol level and how much your cholesterol is lowered. It's very safe. It has minimal side effects and it's all of $3 a month. Would you take it? Most of those patients say yes. So for this person who's at increased risk of heart disease, I sort of see statin as a vitamin to prevent heart attacks and strokes. But unlike vitamins, we actually have randomized control trial data that show that they make a difference. There is some other things, though, that I would do before I recommended a statin just to get a better comprehensive risk assessment on this patient because the intensity of the statin, the goal LDL I have for this patient is going to be affected by some other testing, which I think maybe we'll talk about that a um, little later on in the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Navar. It's really helpful to hear how you frame taking a statin to patients because how it's framed can really affect the patient's perception of the medication. So it seems like a patient would benefit from starting a statin given his risk profile and he's interested in making several modifications to his lifestyle. However, he's still uncertain about starting a statin, mainly because he's asymptomatic and doesn't feel that his family history is a strong enough reason for him to have to take a daily medication for the rest of his life. The ACCHA guidelines highlight the importance of shared decision-making with our patients and also recommend measuring a coronary artery calcium or CAC score in intermediate risk patients to help facilitate a more informed risk discussion. Would a CAC score be a benefit in Mr. B's case? So the first thing I would say before we talk about additional therapies is I really liked how you told me about, first, what his thoughts were around a statin to begin with. So before I recommend CAC testing, I usually test the waters out with the patient to see where they are on the statin spectrum. Some patients come to me and say, I'll do whatever it takes to lower my risk of heart disease. And I'll talk to them about what we know about the benefits of statins. And just as a quick reminder, we have randomized trial data from over 100,000 patients in primary prevention. 
that show that there's no interaction on the relative scale between the benefit of statin therapy and someone's risk of heart disease or their age. And in fact, if we look at data from the cholesterol treatment trialists, it actually looks like the relative risk reduction we see per degree of LDL lowering is actually highest in the lowest risk groups and in the youngest groups. And that's probably because biologically, we're stopping atherosclerosis earlier. So we're preventing the initiation of atherosclerosis in the arteries to begin with. So we're not trying to treat the fire after it's already raging. We are able to sort of get them on therapy while the fire is still young or they perhaps haven't even started to develop significant atherosclerotic plaques to begin with. So if somebody is really engaged and interested in taking a statin already and they're at intermediate risk and have a family history of heart disease, I would recommend a statin sort of regardless of a CAC score. And in that case, I don't do a CAC score because there can be downsides. We have to remember that CAC scoring has a small but not insignificant amount of radiation. It's often not covered by insurance. And so the $100 to $150 out-of-pocket cost can be a lot of money for a lot of the patients that we see. And then we also see often, at least anecdotally, I've seen a number of patients that have high CAT scores who are asymptomatic, who go on to get a bunch of unnecessary testing, like stress tests and other things. So there is a potential downside to CAC scoring. So I don't recommend it universally for all patients. But this person is actually a great candidate for a CAC score. And that's because they fall into the group of people who are kind of needing something that I, I describe as a tiebreaker. And the way I describe it to my patients is to say, look, Right now, this is all really hypothetical. And, you know, I'm talking about predictions, whether or not you're going to get heart disease, whether or not you're going to have a heart attack or stroke. But there's a test that I can do that can fairly accurately evaluate whether or not you've already started to develop cholesterol plaques in your arteries to begin with. And then I go on to explain what a CAC test is and tell them that if you have any coronary calcium, it's sort of like the tip of the iceberg because while some of the plaque calcifies, if there's a little bit of calcified plaque there, there's usually more non-calcified plaque. So we can do a CAC score. And if you have any CAC at all, it tells us that you've already started developing atherosclerotic disease. And in that case, we really need to go ahead and get you on medication to take that plaque and stabilize it and keep it from turning into a heart attack and to prevent you from getting more. On the other hand, if you don't have any CAC, we have one of two options. We can put you on a statin and try to prevent CAC from forming in the first place, or we can repeat your CAC score in five years and see you know, how things are changing. You can sort of have a hall pass for five years, assuming that you don't have a major change in your other risk factors. You don't get diabetes or start smoking again, et cetera. Now, it is important to remember that the HAACC guidelines do note that even in intermediate risk patients, with a CAC of zero, there are certain things that the guidelines specifically say should not make you de-risk somebody with a CAC of zero. And that includes people who are active smokers. So, you know, just guideline in themselves recognize that some patients are at even higher risk than we expect and we shouldn't de-risk based on a, a CAC score alone. But I like CAC testing and I find even for some of my more reluctant statin patients, it, it does two things. One is before the CAC score, it gives them a feeling like, well, maybe I don't need a statin. So they say, well, okay, like I'll, I'll get the score and, and then we'll see. And a lot of people who are really kind of reluctant to take a statin, often they're afraid of possible side effects. Once they know they have stuff 
sticking in their arteries already are much more afraid of that than they are the statin and much more willing to take a statin. So if this person can afford a cap test, has 100 or $150, that isn't going to break the bank, um, I would recommend a cap test. Two other important caveats here. We need to remember that CAC is less prevalent in young people and less prevalent in women compared to men. So this is a 52-year-old man. So CAC's going to have pretty reasonable performance in terms of identifying patients with atherosclerosis. But if this was a 42-year-old woman, I would be a little bit less pro-CAC testing because there is a pretty reasonable chance that if she has coronary atherosclerosis, her CAC score would still be zero. So it's important that we remind patients that a CAC score of zero makes their risk lower, but it is not an insurance policy against atherosclerosis. It is not a guarantee they have it. It just means that they don't have any calcified plaque just yet. Wow, Dr. Navarro, that was great. Thank you so much for going over the many benefits, but also some of the pitfalls around CAC scoring. And I actually didn't realize that CAC could potentially under-risk our women patients. So I appreciate you going over that. And for the audience, uh, definitely check out episode 44, where we discussed CAC scoring with Dr. Michael Blaha. And in the notes for this episode, we will include a link to Gerlin's tutorial that gave me a much better appreciation for some of the basis of why we do the CAC score. But as useful as CAC scoring can be, it isn't the only tool we have at our disposal now, is it? There have been a lot of interest in novel lipid biomarkers, and Dr. Navar, you mentioned some of these, notably lipoprotein little a and apolipoprotein B, and how elevated blood levels of these markers may be associated with ASCBD risk and are recognized as risk-enhancing factors. How do you incorporate testing for LP little a and ApoB in, into your practice? Well, I'll start with LP little a. The guidelines actually recommend all patients with a premature family history do have an LP little a measured. So LP little a, just for those who may be a little bit less familiar with it, is a type of cholesterol particle that looks like an LDL particle, but it has an additional protein on it on the surface, and it's not measured by traditional lipid panels. Interestingly, it doesn't correlate with LDL levels or really any of our traditional risk factors. So you can't predict who's going to have an LP little a based on what their other lipids look like or based on what their clinical profile looks like. It's also very consistent throughout our lifespan. So if it's elevated now, it's probably been elevated for decades. And if it's normal now, it's probably going to stay normal in the future. So you don't have to repeat it. It's a nice test because if you've tested it once, you don't really need to keep testing it again if it's normal. LP little a is very genetically determined. And it's often something that we see in people with a premature coronary disease or a family history of premature coronary disease or people where there's a family history of multiple generations of coronary disease because elevated LP little a is running in the family. For those of you who remember that old show, The Biggest Loser, there was a trainer on there, was very healthy and had a heart attack, and his only risk factor was LP little a. So that raised a little bit of consciousness, but most people have never heard of it. So although the guidelines recommend testing it in people with a family history, my clinical practice is actually a little bit broader. Because people come to see me in prevention clinic, I think it's really useful to get a comprehensive risk assessment in them, and that includes measuring lipoprotein A. And the reason for that is although we don't have treatments right now to lower LP little a that lower cardiovascular risk, niacin lowers LP little a but has not been shown to lower cardiovascular risk, we do have a number of therapies that are currently in clinical trials that dramatically lower LP little a and may be coming to the market in the next several years 
probably first in secondary prevention, but eventually, hopefully, maybe even in primary prevention. So we need to start kind of understanding the landscape and finding people so that if these therapies become available, we're ready to offer them to our patients and we know who those patients are. And if somebody has a high LP little a, I tell them, you know, I can't lower your LP little a, but I can lower your cholesterol related risk and LP little a is part of that. So if your LP little a is high, it means I need to get your LDL cholesterol particles as low as possible. And I'll use that to sort of change my treatment targets for somebody's LDL cholesterol and usually want to drive that down much lower, definitely below 70. And in somebody with multiple risk factors, established cardiovascular disease, I'll want it less than 55 rather than less than 70 for their LDL. ApoB is a separate conversation. So ApoB is a measure of cholesterol particles. It's your LDL and your VLDL particles. So it's the total number of atherogenic lipoproteins that you have. For most people, your LDL-C level, which is what we measure with the traditional lipid panel, it's measuring the volume of LDL that you have, but it doesn't tell you how many particles there are. And turns out, if you have a high LDL but a very low particle number, you're actually being deceived, and it looks like they're at higher risk than they really are. There's other people, though, that have a low LDL-C but a really high particle number. And there, you're being tricked in the other direction. It looks like they're not at high lipid-related risk, but they really are. That discordant phenotype with low uh, LDL-C and a high particle number is a particularly risky phenotype. And so I think it's important for us to know what the relative ApoB LDL-C looks like in all of our patients. If it's concordant, I usually can leave that alone and then just follow their LDL-C. But if it's discordant, it's just as easy to follow their ApoB instead. ApoB is cheap. It doesn't cost um, any more than a lipid panel. And in some labs, it's even cheaper than a lipid panel. It's not affected by fasting, so you can measure it non-fasting. It's not affected by triglycerides because it's not a calculation. So we don't have issues like we get with Friderold and people with abnormal triglycerides. And we don't get these wonky numbers of ApoB like we get in patients who are treated with PCSK9 inhibitors whose LDLCs are really low. And you'll see a estimated LDL of like zero. That doesn't happen with ApoB. So I actually prefer ApoB to LDLC as a test. And I think in the future we'll be moving or we should move to really focusing on ApoB over LDLC. But in the interim, I measure ApoB in everybody because we just don't have great tools to predict who's discordant. And just like LPA, I think we need a comprehensive assessment of somebody's cardiovascular risk. And we really can't get that unless we know how many atherogenic lipoproteins are floating around in their blood. Thank you, Dr. Navar, for that great discussion on LP little a and ApoB. It's really helpful to hear what the guidelines say and how they're adapted for real-life clinical practice, as well as the nuanced worlds of lipids in which lipoprotein subfractions and particle number and discordance really affect patients' risk. Now let's go back to our patient, Mr. B. He decided to proceed with a coronary CT to calculate his CAC, and he'll consider taking a statin based on the results. However, he asks one final question. He has a 20-year-old son and a 25-year-old daughter. Should they be screened for ASDVD? Well, this goes back to really the, the concept that it's never too early to start thinking about cardiovascular prevention. It's important for the children of this patient to know that there's a family history of heart disease, that they could be at increased risk, and it's important for them to try to start healthy habits early because there's no substitute, even statins, 
to a healthy lifestyle, especially over decades of life. So the most important thing for these two is to not smoke, to eat well, start regular exercise, to maintain a healthy weight. That said, we also need to make sure that we're identifying people who may be eligible for intervention early. If this person with a family history of premature ASCVD has an LDL cholesterol of 190 or 200 and may have familial hypercholesterolemia, or if their LP little a is sky high and that may run in families, it's critical that we identify that in the children of this patient as early as possible to prevent recapitulating the fate of the family. Universal lipid testing is recommended for all adults anyways, but it should be extra emphasized in this patient. So I would tell the patient, if you have children, make sure that they get their cholesterol tested. And if the patient has an elevated LPA or has evidence of possible familial hypercholesterolemia, I also tell them that they need to have their children get their LP little a tested, or if they have a family history of FH, that they should get their cholesterol tested and I'll offer to see those children in clinic as well to help provide some guidance. Unfortunately, the vast majority of patients with FH are under-identified, are not recognized until they've had their first heart attack or are put on treatment far too late. If we did a better job of identifying people with FH early, we could really, really bend the curve on outcomes in FH. So the best way for us to do that for the families of the patients that we see is to encourage lipid testing in uh, the offspring of children with heart disease, especially those with uh, premature heart disease or family histories. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Navarre. You know, this has been an incredible journey through cardiovascular disease prevention. And we've talked so much about history taking, the ASCVD risk score and how to apply it to our patients, risk enhancing factors, coronary artery calcium testing, and lipid markers. And as we near the end of this journey, what are your major takeaways for us when counseling patients with a family history of ASCVD? It's so hard to sort of package all of this up into, you know, a couple of quick sound bites. But I suppose I would say, first, the only way we'll be able to use family history as a risk marker is if we start asking about it. So take the extra minute or two minutes in clinic to ask your patients about heart disease and document it in the medical record so that other people can see it as well. Also, make sure that you start by asking the patients not just about their family history, but where they're coming from in terms of their own perceptions about cardiovascular risk and their own perceived self-efficacy about what to do about it. It's January 9th when we're recording this episode, and a lot of people are you know, in New Year's resolution mode, but oftentimes that comes along with a lot of people really being hard on themselves for all the things that They've not done well as, you know, the two years of COVID, a lot of people have made changes in their lifestyle and diets that they aren't particularly proud of. It is really important that we remind our patients that there's always things that they can do to lower their risk of heart disease. And there are past things that they've done, both from a lifestyle or medication standpoint, are things that can be changed and they can improve their cardiovascular health. They're never too old. It's never too late. There's never too many genetic risk factors for them to be able to make a difference in their heart health. And as their doctor, we have the privilege of joining them on that journey and we can offer them other tools that they can use to help understand their risk of heart disease and that they can use to help lower their risk of heart disease in the future. And it's not a one-time conversation. A lot of these conversations are multiple visits. You 
have people who are maybe on the fence about statins and then we get more testing and we talk to them and they maybe do a trial and we see how they're doing. So this is a longitudinal conversation that we have with our patients. And as we build rapport with them, we also gain their trust and it can be more effective to offer therapies after that rather than, you know, right away, oh, you should be on a statin, you have family history. You don't want to lose the trust by making the patient think that you're just sort of firing and forgetting. So keep the conversation open with your patients and even your most reluctant patients. Like usually if you stick with them, even if you can never get them to take a statin, there are often lots of things that you can do to help them change their lifestyles or other things that can lower the risk of heart disease over time. That was great, Dr. Navarra. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've all learned so much from you today. I'll definitely re-listen to this episode again to make sure I don't miss any of the pearls you shared with us. But before we end the episode, Dr. Navarre, what makes your heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention? Cardiovascular prevention is the absolute best part of cardiology because you can actually see changes in your patients' overall health that isn't just preventing their risk of heart disease, but you know, some of the lifestyle modifications and um, changes in diet, exercise, smoking are also lowering the risk of cancer, dementia, disability over time. So we might not be able to see an artery go from closed to open and have that immediate gratification, but we're empowering people to live longer, fuller, disease-free lives that they're going to enjoy for a really, really long time. It's an absolute honor for us to be able to help our patients in their overall health and to help them navigate a lot of the complicated, confusing information out there about cardiology and cardiovascular disease. And when we do it well and our patients actually make those changes, it's so satisfying and exciting because we know what a difference it's making over the long term. We also have just the best colleagues. The, the people that I get a chance to work with, both in my clinic, we have a nutritionist, I have great colleagues, and also on the research side of things or with the American Society of Preventive Cardiology are all really dedicated, committed people that joined the field of cardiovascular prevention because they believe in health and wellness and population health and in fairness and equity. And I think if you can find a job where you really like what you're doing and you get to work with amazing people, then you can feel like work sometimes, but it's always rewarding and it's always satisfying. Well, thank you so much for that, Dr. Navarro. My heart is fluttering hearing how excited you are about cardiovascular prevention. And we definitely agree, even you know, in the cath lab, as you said earlier, it's never too late and it's never too early to start on cardiovascular disease prevention. And it really does make everyone excited in cardiology when we're able to help the masses in terms of prevention, thinking from a community health standpoint, but then also to um, take that data and information that we've talked about today to help your particular patient who particularly is concerned given their family history of heart disease. So this was a particularly great episode. And we're so excited to add this episode to our cardiovascular prevention series, which you actually were part of when we discussed lipids with you and Dr. Nishant Shah. So thank you so much. And thank you, Gurleen and Ahmed, for joining us today. This was a fabulous episode. Well, thanks for having me. And a, a special shout out to Gurleen and, and her colleagues working on the early career side of cardio nerds and in cardiovascular prevention. Just like it's never too early to start our patients for cardiovascular prevention. It's also never too early for those of you out there listening interested in cardiovascular prevention 
to start working with us. So I would encourage anyone who's listening who might be interested in prevention, come join us at the American Society for Preventive Cardiology and keep an eye on the amazing things that you guys are doing at Cardio Nerds to increase engagement and participation. The future for us is super bright. And I know all of us faculty that are involved in cardiovascular prevention are just thrilled to see people at your level and at the fellowship level like Ahmed getting involved in prevention. We're here to support you. There's a bunch of us here waiting to welcome you with open arms. So come join us. Thank you so much, Dr. Navar. It's so inspiring to see your passion for cardiovascular prevention and get to learn from you in this discussion. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.